just because, you know, the 10 handicap, they're not tucking the pins as much, you know, at your home course um, when you play on Saturday morning, doesn't mean you should be firing at flags that are near the edge. Today, we are joined by Luce Dagner. Luce, the co-host of the Hack It Out Golf podcast, works for Arcos as Data Insights Lead and is one of the leading data research analysts on the PGA Tour. Lou also serves as the assistant men's golf coach for Princeton. Why don't you tell us a little bit how you just got into playing the game of golf? Um, I didn't play that much when I was a young kid. I think the first time I hit a golf ball, I want to say maybe I was nine years old and I was at a hockey camp when I first hit a golf ball. Um, and I played occasionally, you know, through my teenage years, it started to pick up a little bit more as I got older. Um, and, but really, you know, didn't get into playing until I was uh, 20, 19 or 20, roughly around there. Um, and when I first started, uh, playing, um, I played left-handed, um, throughout the entire bag. Um, and, so eh, when I was 16, 17, you know, I, I would play a handful of times a year with my buddies. Um, it was never, you know, very good. Um, and then when I, when I switched over to right-handed, um, I didn't switch all my clubs at once. I, uh, I, my shorter clubs were still lefty and my longer clubs were righty. Um, and uh, I had, had knee surgery on my right knee, and that's, kind of, that's why I switched. It was t- tough to finish on the on the right side as a lefty. And, and so I just kind of switched over and, and here I am however many years later. And are you naturally uh, right-handed or left-handed? You know, I'm a mix. So um, I play hockey left-handed, uh, uh, baseball, I bat left-handed, uh, I throw with my right hand. Uh, I play tennis with my left hand. I still putt lefty. I'll never give that up. Uh, so I'm a little bit of a little bit of a mix. Okay. Um, on what I do and why that makes no sense to me, but, uh, and it doesn't really work. I wish I could say, you know, I'm this unbelievable athlete and I'm good at everything I do. I'm not, I'm not, I, you know, mediocre to, I stink at everything I do. So was hockey your first sport? It was. Yeah. I played hockey growing up. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, um, and played hockey, um, right up until I, you know, blew my knee out and had ACL surgery a couple times. So, um, then kind of hockey was kind of done after that. So I, gravitated over to over to golf and uh and now i get to uh you know whack a little white ball around that's not too bad it's funny that you say that about your knee and switching uh switching direction as far as swinging goes because cooper actually had that happen uh to him in the sense that he had acl problems back in middle school and then recently it was only a few years ago and we'll kind of get into uh, not Cooper himself, but, you know, amateurs having misaligned expectations and going down rabbit holes of derangement. But one night Cooper went down, um, a rabbit hole and I can remember him texting me and this is, you know, he's a high level golfer. He's playing D one golf, uh, all conference and was, um, you know, plus three plus four handicap. And he's texting me at eight at night, like, man, I'm hitting the ball left-handed so well. I've got to switch over to that side. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, golfers are, you know, by definition, we're all a little loopy. So um, that doesn't surprise me. I doesn't thought I found me. the key 
And then like- You a did. Week, you you a week, did. For that <laughs> moment, you found the key. You had the secret. You unlocked a, it. A week later, I made, I had my uh, probably my worst college golf tournament of my career. So if that tells you where my mind really was. <laughs> yeah. You were still playing lefty in your mind. Well, perfect. Uh, moving on beyond that. So you got into golf uh, really more seriously when you're 19 or 20. How did that develop into you, like where you are today? Ah, oh, boy, that's a that's a long road. So I I got the golf bug pretty bad when I started, and I went from being, you know, a mediocre, you know, bad a bad player, a beginner player, um, to being a, a pretty decent player in the span of like five or six years. I got down to uh, right around scratch. I never got to the plus side. My best index was zero point one, but I would always hover you know, in right around one, um, one to two, um, in that range for many years. And how did I get into what I'm doing now? So I went to school for computer science and math and started out after graduating uh, from college uh, in software development and then gravitated over to, you know, reporting and analytics and was kind of doing analytics before they even really called it that. So I was always you know, attracted to, um, you know, that side of, of, of things to do. And so, you know, when I was a kid and we would, you know, run some kind of, uh, you know, league on Nintendo, like I was the guy that was tracking all the stats and, you know, coordinating everything and just, um, you know, had my book of uh, all the details and all the numbers. So I've always kind of been that way and, and gravitated towards that. Um, and so the natural progression for me was, was, you know, doing some of that in golf. And I started to, I tracked all my stats back when I first started playing in spreadsheets and I had, I tracked shot level detail. I didn't just track number of greens hit number of fairways hit. Like I tracked how far I was to the hole, you know, where I started from and where I ended from. I had enough detail that I could go back to all that and turn it into strokes gained if I wanted to and kind of see how I was performing back then. So I was pretty diligent about my stat tracking and always have been. And uh, what, four years ago now? Yeah, just a little over four years ago now, I started a blog on uh, golf analytics and uh, I, I had some some things that I had been, you know, tinkering around with, I had access to the data and um, I thought they would make some interesting blog pieces and, you know, maybe some people would read them. I thought at the most, some of my buddies would read them, uh, but I really did it to kill some, kill some time during the off season in the winter. Um, and it grew pretty quickly um, and unexpectedly. I, I never dreamed that a whole lot of people would find, um, you know, golf data interesting, but they did. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've bounced around, um, you know, the last few years doing a couple of different things. I know you recently had Scott Fawcett on. And so I'd worked with Scott for a little while. And, and then after that, I ended up over at Arcos. So I've been over there for the last year and like three months helping out with them. Um, and it's been, it's been cool. It's been awesome. It, it, I get to do things and say things and meet people and it, it just, I never dreamed any of this stuff would, would, uh, you know, would have happened, never intended it to, but it's been a really, really fun ride. So when you, you said you started keeping very high, very, very specific statistics, shot level yeah. statistics early on, 
was yeah. this, and you said you used it for strokes gain. Did you start, when did you, what age did you start keeping those at? Um, 21. I mean, not, not too long after I really got, kind of got the bug. Um, and I started tracking stats right away. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly wasn't doing any kind of strokes gain calculations at all. Hadn't existed yet, wasn't invented. Brody didn't invent that until, you know, the mid 2000s. I have the data to go back and calculate strokes gained if I wanted to on, on all that data. But um, yeah, I was um, what you would say, maybe a little obsessed with, with all the numbers afterwards. So I had, you know, this format where I would write everything out um, in a scorecard and just track everything as I went and I'd get home and punch it into uh, you know, a spreadsheet and away, away I went. What were some of the ways that you broke down those numbers um, without stroke scan existing? Yeah, not really well. So um, I, I, I would um, get lost in a lot of the, you know, the, the, the stats of the time. So I would, you know, putts, putts per green and regulation, you know, then I was doing like putts per green and regulation from the fairway and putts per green and regulation out of the rough like things that, you know, seemed pretty cool, like at the time, um, but, um, you know, were not really useful. And, and I don't rem remember any of the real specifics, but I do know that, and it makes perfect sense, right? I was like, you know, I, I average way less putts when, when I'm, my approach shot is from the fairway. So when I'm hitting greens from the fairway, I, I average way less putts than when I when I you know hit greens from the rough. And well, that probably makes sense. My proximity is going to tend to skew a little bit closer when I hit the green from the fairway than when I hit the green from the rough. So um, it was it was fun. Um, I wish I would have knew and understood. And strokes gained was invented back then because I could have I could have done some pretty cool stuff with that. I think one of the reasons that your Twitter account and blog are so popular is because there's really just not that many people that are doing what you do. I mean, even if you go watch the masters, they still just have the basic stats like fairways, green, fairways hit, greens hit, number of putts. They don't even have strokes gained yet. When it, when strokes gain came out, were you aware of it immediately or did it take a little while for you to um, discover? No, I remember the, I remember the announcements and reading about the announcements. And when strokes gain first came out, it was only putting at first. If you, if you remember that it was, it was putting only. And I remember reading about it and going, wow, this is really, this is really clever. Um, this is really interesting. And then, you know, within the next couple of years, they had um, extended it to all parts of the game. And then every shot came out, what it was probably 2014, 2015, somewhere around there. Um, and, uh, it's just, a it's, it's a book that I think every golfer should read and understand, you know, understanding, um, you know, strokes gained and the, some of the other concepts in the book are extremely, extremely beneficial to golfers to, to, I think far too many people have no clue what it means when you say strokes gained. Um, I've told this before, but I have a, a buddy, a former D one golfer. He's played in multiple USGA events. Um, phenomenal player, really, really good player. And he said to me one day, he's like, can you got to explain strokes gained to me? Like, I, I don't understand what it means. And it, it, that just, my jaw kind of hit the floor. Like, how can you not understand what it means? You know, you are so good. Like you're what I dream about when I go to bed at night about being as good as you, how do you not understand strokes gained? It's so basic and so simple. 
but most people don't understand what it is. And reading that book and, and walking away with some of the knowledge that's in there would be, I would recommend every golfer go through and, and spend a few hours to do that. For someone who's listening, who may be in his shoes, not understanding what strokes gain means, could you break down what strokes gained is? Yeah, at a high level, it's just uh, the average. Uh, so from every distance and location, um, and, and let's just say it's for scratch players, uh, we would calculate uh, with a whole bunch of shots, the average number of shots it would take you to get in the hole from, let's say, 100 yards in the fairway. Uh, and and um, whatever that number happens to be, um, we do that for all locations. So we, we know that number from 100 yards, from 99, from 98. We know it from everywhere. And then we know it from every position on the green, in the rough, all around the green. And essentially what Strokes Gained is doing is saying, how far, uh, how far away are you from the hole? How many shots on the average is it going to take you to get down from there? And then wherever the ball ends up, how many shots on the average is it going to take you to get in the hole from wherever the ball ends up? And then how much you gain or how much you lose is the difference between those essentially. So let's put some numbers around that. For a PGA Tour player, from 168 yards in the fairway, they average about three shots to get the ball in the hole. A PGA Tour player from eight feet on the green, they average about one and a half putts to get the ball in the hole. So if a PGA Tour player hits the ball from 168 yards in the fairway to eight feet on the green, they gained a half a shot on that. So the analogy that I always give around, give around strokes gain, which helps people to think of it better, um, is I ask somebody, I give them the analogy of when you say to somebody, um, you know, how far is it for you to, to drive to work? Um, a lot of people are going to answer that with, well, it's, it's like 15 minute drive. Um, they didn't say it's 2.7 miles. They said it's 15 minutes for me to get to work. And so it kind of works the same way with strokes gained. So when you say, how far are you from the hole? You can say I'm 168 yards. And that's like saying I live 2.7 miles from work. Or you can say I'm three shots from the hole. And that's like saying it's a 15 minute drive to work. So it's just a different way to think about how far away you are from the hole. And then wherever the ball ends up, you're in the same position. You're a certain distance from the hole, but that's also a certain number of shots. And did you do better or, you, or did you do worse? And then the final thing I'll say on this is just back to the 168-yard example for a PJ Tour Pro. When they um, are 168 yards, if they hit the ball to 33 feet, from 33 feet, they average about two putts. So they started three shots from the hole at 168 yards. They hit it to 38 feet, 33 feet, which is two shots from the hole. So they broke even, right? They started three shots from the hole. They took one shot to get somewhere else. And now they're two shots from the hole. They broke even. Strokes gained zero, which is a good shot. Um, so I know that for a lot of people, it can get confusing. And I've you know, been in the weeds of this for so long that sometimes I just take it for granted. Uh, the, I guess the I'll say, I said the final thing, but the, the, the last final example I'll give, because it's an easy one for people to think of, is uh, the, the eight feet on the green. PJ Tour Pro is eight feet on the green. It's make rates about 50%, one and a half putts. If a PGA Tour player is eight feet and they make a putt, they gain a half shot. On the average, it takes them one and a half. They did it in one, they gain a half shot. If they two putt, they would lose a half shot. 
because on the average, it takes one and a half. They took two, they lose a half shot. It's the same concept across all shots. So hopefully that makes sense. No, that's a great explanation of it. And I think that leads right into a question that someone uh, who just learned about it might not ask, but people who look at strokes gained more and more, uh, not there's anything wrong with it, but they're obviously it's obviously difficult to apply that across the board. For example, like PGA tour stats, those strokes gained in a tournament are compared to the rest of the field. So you have very similar playing conditions, very similar course, et cetera. So it's easier to compare. Whereas you take people across a variety of courses, a variety of um, conditions, it's harder to compare. So talk to us a little bit about some of the shortcomings of strokes gained or maybe some of its limitations and what you try to do to parse that out or when you're working with people, how you try to mitigate that if it's possible. Uh, Yeah, there definitely are some shortcomings strokes gained, Um, even on the PGA Tour. Like one of the benefits of the PGA Tour and the way that you explained it tells me that you understand this, which most people don't, is they, um, every time you hit a shot, um, you are gaining strokes or losing strokes against the baseline. But after each round, they do an adjustment. And that adjustment is essentially um, accounting for things like course difficulty or weather conditions. Now they do it at the round level um, and it's not always perfect because waves can have very different weather. You can go out in the morning and have a cakewalk with weather and then the afternoon wave gets slammed with 20 mile an hour winds and they're playing in very different conditions. So it's not perfect. Um, The other, you know, one of the uh, other um, issues around strokes gained is it's just simply taking into account how far away you are from the hole and what your lie is and where it can make a pretty big impact is around the green. Um, And there's a big difference between being short-sided and being long-sided if you miss the green. And so as golfers, whether you're a PGA Tour player or you're a 20 handicap, you know that if you have, let's say, for example, a uh, you know an 18-yard shot, uh, and you're just a yard off the green, so you're a yard off the green, and you have 17 yards of green to work with, that's a very different shot than if you're 18 yards from the hole and you only have four yards of green to work with. You know, 16 yards of rough, four yards of green. Those are night and day. Um, the way strokes gained would treat those is it would treat them exactly the same. So if you hit each one of those shots to a foot. Um, strokes gained is going to say you gain the same exact amount on those when they are wildly different as far as difficulty level and and what you should have gained and or lost depending on the situation. Now there's things that that I've done in the past and that I do to adjust for that. So I take into account short sightedness and how short sighted somebody is, um, and that is probably the one of the easiest adjustments that that you can make. Um, with strokes gained, and, and it certainly uh, will help. Um, what you will start to see without me letting the cat out of the bag is you'll start to see that's probably going to end up changing um, for amateur players where you know, there, there are things that can be done that mimic um, what happens at the PGA Tour level as far as post-round adjustments, um, taking into account some of these things, uh, difficulty, weather, wind, difficulty of the setup. Um, and, and most of that is driven by pin locations. Um, if you play around and, and, and the pins are cut, you know, closer towards the center of the green, 
Um, the course is going to play a lot easier than if the pins are all the way around the edge, like it's club championship. So it can make those kind of adjustments. Um, so there's, there's a, a, a lot that can be done and will be done. Um, you know, you know, coming soon to a theater near, near you. Um, so, but it's not perfect, but it's a whole lot better than Puttsburgh green and regulation. I can tell you that much. Interesting. Well, without giving away, Again, surprises, proprietary data, et cetera. When it comes to an adjustment for being short-sighted, what do, let's say I'm at home, you know, I have my uh, strokes gained already through uh, some system, or let's say I calculated it myself. What's the, is there a rule of thumb or something in order to adjust for short-sightedness? Yeah, you know, the, the, um, the more short-sighted you are, the, um, the tougher the shot's going to get. So there's no like you know inflection point where um, you know you have a 20 yard shot and you have nine yards of green to work with, you know there's no inflection point where that's just the exact cutoff and anything you know on this side is going to be easy and anything on that side is going to get hard. It gets progressively harder the less green you have to work with, but um, the it starts to get a lot harder when you have um, less than 50% green to work with. So if you have a 20 yard shot and you have um, less than 10 yards of green to work with, it starts to get a lot harder. And you know, if you have a 16 yard shot and you have less than eight yards of green to work with, it starts to get a lot harder. The less you have, the harder it gets. Um, and depending on skill level and other factors, because uh, again, you know, in if we're talking basketball here, every free throw is exactly the same. You know, you're, the rim's the same exact height, you're the same exact distance. It's identical. Uh, golf shots are not identical. There's so many factors in play um, from the lie to how much green you have uh, have to work with, the type of grass that you're in, uh, elevation change between where the ball is around the green and the level of the green. Uh, the inflection point there is about two feet. Um, so if if there's more than two feet of elevation change, it starts to make it tougher. Um, and that works in both directions. So that works in if the ball, you know, typically most greens are elevated, they're, they're above you. Um, and so if the green is more than two feet above you, that, that shot starts to get harder, noticeably harder. But it's also true when you are two feet above the green or more, which doesn't happen too often, but there's plenty of those where, you know, it's punch bowl-ish or there's some kind of hill on the side. And, and if the green is more than two feet below where you are, it starts to get noticeably harder. Uh, the other thing that makes a, you know, a huge difference with, with being short-sighted or not is the slope of the green. Is the green sloping away from you or is it sloping towards you? That can make a difference as well. Um, and then the final thing that makes a big impact is wind. Like most people are only concerned about wind with approach shots and off the tee. And one of the things that I have players looking at when they when we're mapping out golf courses together, you know, to prep for a tournament, we're looking at, you know, weather forecast in advance and, you know, the wind is going to be as accurate as it, it's going to be two or three days out. But the day of when they're picking targets, I want them to look at wind direction in case they happen to miss the green and to be short-sighted. Um, and so if you've, and, and it's important to know in those situations, elevation change. So, okay, the pins on the left, if I miss left here, is there an elevation change? Oh yeah, there is. It's like three or four feet. Okay. All right. There's, there's, you know, red flag number one. All right, what's the slope of the green doing 
You know, if I miss left and I'm short side of left, oh, the greens aren't running away from me. Okay, it's red flag number two. Oh, and if I miss left to that tucked pin on the left, it's going to be, you know, 10 miles an hour downwind. That's red flag number three. Like these are just giant red alerts that are going off and saying you need to be even more conservative because if you miss short-sighted in that situation where there's elevation change, a green running away from you and it's downwind, the only way you are likely getting that ball in the hole is by making a 20-footer. That's really the only way because uh, you're probably not going to hit it close unless you hit some kind of miracle shot. So those are the kind of things that that I'm looking at and thinking about when I think of short-sighted. Um, all of those have varying levels of impact to how difficult it is. It can be anywhere from five one-hundredths of a shot to a tenth of a shot difference in difficulty level depending on all of these things. And when you have a number of these things stacked on top of each other, it can make a make a, a shot, you know, anywhere from a third of a shot to or more, um, more difficult because of that. So those are the things we're trying to understand and avoid. So when you say uh, you got these variety of red flags and when you get those red flags, you should take note and um, you probably play more conservatively. And I think maybe another way to look at it that I think you'd agree with is um, play essentially from what you said, you play statistically correctly, which is uh, more conservatively being meaning that the de facto target was the flag, but uh, more conservatively uh, meaning you're not necessarily playing directly at the pin when it comes to, I think, I don't know if I phrased that well, if I didn't tell me, but does that con does that uh, sound like something you'd agree with? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the 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 tougher the you know the more penalty for being short sighted, the more you want to shift away from being short sighted, you know. And 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 all of this um, gets all of this is is so variable. It, there's so many factors in play here, from the that specific situation to the, who the player is and what their skill level is. You know, things are going to be very different for a tour player than they are for a, an, an eight handicap. Those are two wildly different skill levels. Um, and they have to, you know, think about and, and consider different things. And, and every situation is different. You know, there's there's been times where, you know, I've, you know, mapped out golf courses with some of the college players that I've worked with. And we will get to a par three. I forget the course. It's somewhere. It was maybe out in Arizona. I forget which one it is. But they had this crazy par three that was basically all over water. And the green was extremely shallow. And it was all carry to the green. Um, and behind the green, there was this giant mound. And then behind the mound was grass that was waist high. Um, and I was working with a player who's you know, phenomenal player, top 10 in the wagger, um, and higher than that. Um, and we had a target that was off the green. Um, we had a target that for him, who one of the best ams in the world, it was off the green. Um, and so there's so many things that, you know, it's always changing. You can never be perfect. You're just never going to be perfect with any of this stuff. You can try to be as, as close as possible, knowing that, you know, it's never going to be perfect. You just want to get as directionally correct as you can. That kind of leads into my next question, which is when you work with a player that is really elite, like you were mentioning, what are some of the misconceptions that they have even at that level? And how do you develop a practice plan for them? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, and I, you know, there's, um, everyone's different. Um, and so everybody, 
uh, has different misconceptions. Uh, everyone has, um, you know, different fingerprints of, uh, around their game, how they play, what they struggle with. Um, and no two players are exactly the same. Um, and I hope that doesn't sound like I'm, I'm ducking the question, but, uh, you know, so many players have, you know, wildly different things that they're focusing on, working on, uh, struggle with, do well with. Um, but I would say even at that level, um, at least when I initially start to work with some of them, or, or one of the things that probably stands out is how misaligned their expectations are um, and what they consider good and what, and what they consider bad. And it's one of the things that I've worked with pretty significantly with some of the players is, is getting them to, you know, to know that, you know, if you are a hundred yards in the middle of the fairway and you hit it to 23 feet, you just hit a really good shot. Um, and too many elite players that I've seen, um, they're beating themselves up for that. You know, they're expecting more and they're upset when it's not more than that. And, um, helping them to understand that that's a, a great shot. It's a re, you know, it's a really good shot. Um, and is it perfect? No, but it's, it's also not a shot that is likely going to result in bogey or worse, which is ultimately what we're trying to do. Like when you go back and you look at, you know, the best players in, in tour history, um, you know, top, I had put something out about this a while ago, you know, top 40 players on the money list in their career. Um, as a group, I, I don't quote me on this, but I want to say they averaged 3.05 on par threes and 4.06, 4.07 on par fours. Um, they averaged over par on the par threes and the par fours. Now, you know, if, if I'm going to pick apart that, my own stat there, you know, the better players are tending to play some of the harder tournaments in the majors where the scoring might be a little bit tougher, um, but still par is a really good score, you know, make threes on the threes, fours on the fours, and try to make a few birdies on the par fives. If you went out and did that every week, I don't care what level you're at, you're going to do really, really well. And, and so, you know, helping people to understand that, Avoiding big numbers, avoiding bogeys is far more important than making a ton of birdies. Um, you still need birdies. Like if you want to get to the top, um, you have to make you have to make birdies. Uh, if you want to be top 20 player on the money list on the PGA Tour, you not only are you going to make less bogeys than your colleagues, you're going to make more birdies. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't want people to walk away from this, especially the elite players saying I never need to make a birdie. Um, but, you know, avoiding those big numbers is absolutely key. And then, you know, understanding what good means is, is also really key. For, for those elite players and maybe even for PGA Tour players too, where are those birdies coming from mostly? Mostly par fives. Yeah, for sure. Mostly par fives. I think, I think on tour they only birdie – 16% of the par fours right around there, somewhere in there. They're not making a ton of birdies on par threes and par fours. Um, they're making most of their birdies on par fives, you know, on when they go out and put a good number up, they, you know, birdie three or four of the par fours that day and two or three of the par fives. And, 
and don't make any bogeys on the threes and they put a 65 on the board and, and life is good. Um, so yeah, most of the, most of the, um, of the birds from a percentage stake are coming or, you know, on the par fives. That makes sense. Well, you said something interesting about working with high level players. You say, you know, it varies what I do with the player because each has, um, each person has their own needs and you got to work with them where they're at when it comes to tournaments, you know, sometimes players play good. Like you said, uh, go out there, have a nice round, shoot 65. Other times they play bad. With, with the high-level players you work with, is there a difference that you notice in times when they go out and they put up a number? Um, and what are the differences uh, with that when they go out and play really poorly beyond just they had more bogeys than they had birdies or part they had, they had more bogeys or something to that effect? That's a very easy answer, mental game. Um, 100%. I think the mental game is an absolutely massive influence um, at every level, but, uh, especially at the elite level, I think the you know, the difference between the thousandth ranked player in the world and the, you know, 50th ranked player in the world, those are two very different worlds that those players are living in, um, is really not that physically really very little difference mentally, probably a lot. Um, and, and so that's the, the biggest um, impact from what I've seen. Uh, and then from kind of what I've learned about all this, I, I started to work with a, a guy named Dr. Izzy Justice. He's a sports neuroscientist who works with um, golfers, uh, NASCAR drivers, and kind of every sport in between. Um, and I went through a certification program that he gives for coaches. And uh, it was amazing. It was incredible. And I learned more about you know, performance and what's going on neurologically and, 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 you know, what happens when we get, you know, upset, nervous, anxious, excited, scared, um, fearful, whatever you want to describe it as, but you know, what happens, um, up here in our brain, uh, neurologically and how that impacts the swing. And, and I can tell you that, you know, the players that I've worked with, the mental game is a, 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 they have the physical talent. They have the physical skills. They can hit every shot in the bag uh, to go out and put up a good number. Um, but the difference between you know good weeks and bad weeks often, often, often comes down to that. When the mental game is going wrong for them, what do you notice as far as their behavior, actions, thought processes, et cetera? I think people, I think um, some of the big, uh, big items that get in the way of that is um, for some, again, everybody's different, but some get wrapped up in technical thought. Um, they're, you know, very position based and they're thinking about positions constantly. And you can see some of those players, like, you know, they'll go through a pre-shot routine and they're literally like, you know, I, I don't mind the, the, you know, the, the Spieth move or what JT does, um, to get a feel. I think those are great. But I think some players are going through pre-shot routine and there's sort of this checklist of, you know, I need to be here in P2 and they're looking at the, you know, and they're, they're oh, okay, my face has got to completely align with my spine at P2. And they're, they're just mentally rehearsing and, and checking and validating positions and thinking about positions while they play. You know, the other thing too, uh, so that's some players, they get wrapped up in that uh, in swing thoughts and swing positions. 
Um, and then the other players are, you know, they're, they're not, they're thinking about what happened last hole or they're thinking about what might happen next hole and their focus is, is there and it's not here right now. It's, it's somewhere else and they get anxious and nervous and, and scared or excited or what, you know, pick, you know, the descriptive word you want to use and all of that, it does not uh, lead to good performance. Um, and so that's typically what's going on you know, almost all the time. It's interesting you say that because it reminds me of something that we heard when we were talking with Lainey Fry. Um, she plays at University of Kentucky, played in the U.S. Women's Open this year as a sophomore in college. Yeah, and yeah I remember. Yep. He- heck of a player. We've known her a long time. And one of the things she said that she noticed and one of the times she made a jump in her game was she realized that after a lot of rounds, it wasn't like, oh, I hit a bad shot here or I hit a bad shot there. It wasn't just that. It was I hit a bad shot because I didn't have enough left wrist flexion is what she was thinking. And she was even thinking that during the round. So she realized, yeah. you know, I might I might have that issue where I get a little too technical and so or I get too internally focused when things are going wrong. And so that's something right. that she's worked on. When players work on things, it's always unique what they work on as far as like little nuggets that you draw from them. Something like that is something I've seen around. But one of the unique ones that I learned was something that you tweeted out about how Austin Greaser practices on the range as far as his targets go. So would you would you mind telling us about that? Because I thought that was a very unique way to practice and a very helpful way to avoid getting drawn into traps while playing a round of golf. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Austin's awesome. I, I've been working with him now, what, two and a half years? Yeah, it's been a long time, two and a half years, like right before COVID, right after COVID started, we started to work together right around there. <clears throat> and uh, Austin plays at UNC, uh, and he was runner-up in the USAM a couple of years ago, which got him an invite into the Masters and the U.S. Open uh, this year. Um, he missed the cut at Augusta, but he made the cut um, at the U S open, which was, which was pretty cool. Really good player. I think he's fifth in the world right now in the wagger and that's the world amateur golf ranking. And he is, I think still second in PGA tour university standing. So that's kind of the pathway to the PGA tour. So needless to say, he's a phenomenal player. And I was walking, uh, some practice rounds with him at the U S amateur this year, which was not too far away from where I live. Um, and we were on the range and, and he was getting ready to go play practice round later that day. We're doing a practice session at the range. And, uh, he told me that he had started doing this and, and he's like, what do you think of this? I'm like, well, explain to me what you do. He's like, I never hit at a flag on the driving range. I'm like, what do you mean? You never hit a flag. He's like, my flag is never my target. It's like, I'm picking like right now. They get a driver in his hand. He's like, you see that, you know, dark leaf, like in the tree way in the back, like that discolored one, that's the huge one. I, that's what, that's my target. And I'm trying to hit it there. And, and then you know, he said, when I was hitting those irons, my target was, you know, the edge of that tree. I was trying to hit it at the edge of that tree and have it fall at the edge of that tree. And he said, I very rarely am aiming at flags when I'm on the golf course. And so I don't want my eye to get used to firing at flags when I'm on the range because I very rarely do it on the golf course. And so I don't want to get out on the golf course and, you know, having hit, 
you know, eight or 900 iron shots that week on a range with every one of them trying to go right at the flag. And I don't want to step up there when my target might be five feet, 15 feet, 30 feet right of a flag um, and have my eye kind of get sucked over to the flag. I want to get really used to not hitting at flags because I rarely do it. And I heard it and I just went, that's one of the most, it's so simple, but it's one of the most brilliant things that I've heard. Um, And keep in mind, this guy's better at golf than probably just about anybody listening, right? He's really, really, really good. Is he playing setups where they're tucking pins more? Yeah. But just because, you know, the 10 handicap, they're not tucking the pins as much, you know, at your home course um, when you play on Saturday morning, doesn't mean you should be firing at flags that are near the edge. So I thought it was an absolutely brilliant hack. And uh, I asked him if I could put that out there because um, I thought it would help a ton of players. And, and I think it, uh, I've, you, you know, you're the 500th person that's probably brought that one up to me. So I know it's helped a lot of people. Brilliant hack. I think that's an excellent example of how to develop good mental patterns. And just like we were just talking about the mental game, you know, when I was a junior golfer, and I know most junior golfers probably think this, that, you know, having a good mental game is just something that you're born with, or it's just something that comes naturally to you. But in my opinion, a good mental game is developed and can be developed. What are some of the other ways that you would say that a mental uh, an elite mental game can be developed? Um, yeah, that's probably a podcast unto itself. I'll give you. I'll try to give you the the the, the two minute elevator pitch, and this is what I've gone through and learned from Doctor Justice in the certification program that I did. Um, essentially. Um, what we're trying to do. So you're a really good golfer, Cooper. Have you ever been in the zone? Yes. You have. Okay. What did it feel like when you were in the zone? It felt like I was just focusing on my target and everything seemed to be going there. Got it. What else did it feel like? Felt calm, no anxiety, anxiety. low level anxiety. Slow or fast? Slow. Yeah. That's kind of everything you're describing is neurological. I felt slow. I felt calm. Like that's what people are typically saying and what's going on there. So you, you have, you know, your brain is just a big ball of electricity. There's different waves in your brain. And so what you were experiencing there was low frequency brain waves. So alpha and theta brain waves, which is where we want to get to high frequency brain waves. And just kind of think of this, forget the fanciness of this, but, but think of it like a kind of a seismograph with an earthquake, high frequency waves are, you know, it's like an earthquake, right? You know, magnitude seven just hit and it looks like this low frequency is right now there's no earthquake it's just steady and that's what we want our brain waves to be and so the mental game is all about getting to that state and the reason you want to get to that state is bad things happen when you're in high frequency there's three things that go wrong when you're in high frequency so your ability to hit a golf shot exists exclusively in your brain Uh, There's no such thing as muscle memory. The muscles have no ability to store or retain information. The ability to hit a golf shot is right up here in your brain. It has all of the instructions. It sends those instructions to your muscles and your muscles execute those instructions. And so what happens when you have the earthquake, the high frequency brain waves, uh, those instructions, one of the problems is they have a hard time getting where they need to go. So these instructions, they travel along neural pathways. 
fancy word. Think of it like roads that are going around your body. And these roads take the instructions from your brain to where they need to go so that muscle can fire and do something and make you move in a certain way. Well, when you have high-frequency brain waves, um, it's like having a ton of traffic on those roads. It's rush hour. And those little pieces of information, which are instructions to tell your muscles to do something, they run into a traffic jam. So let's say one of those pieces of information is uh, just a, a little bit that needs to tell your left wrist it needs to be in one degree of flexion of impact. Well, it runs into a giant traffic jam at your left elbow and it gets there a little bit late. And so the first uh, problem of having high frequency brain waves is that your sequencing gets off. And, and you know, you're thinking of golf sequencing, which is correct, but the sequencing of those instructions being delivered to the muscles in the right time and the right sequence in the right order gets impacted. And so that, that bit that tells your wrist to be in flexion, it hits that traffic jam, it gets there a little bit late. And now your wrist, instead of being at one degree of flexion at impact, it's at one degree of extension, which changes the face in a big way. And the ball goes off the map and people look at that and go, Oh, my swing's different. I got to change it. Yeah. Now there's a lot of things that can cause you to cause you to hit the ball like that. And your mental state is plays a pretty big role. So the second thing that it can do is it can cause your sense of force to be impacted. So if you've ever been really, really nervous, um, sometimes people will tell you like my arms felt really heavy. My hands felt like stone. Your sense of force gets impacted when you have high frequency brainwaves. And so, you know, typically my arm, it feels like it weighs, I don't know, three pounds, five pounds, whatever it is. If I was really, really nervous, it might feel like it weighs 15. Um, and so how that impacts the golf swing, let's say you're 110 yards out, you have a perfect gap wedge uh, and you hit it exactly how you want. You flight it exactly how you want. You hit it exactly on the button. There's no wind. It's perfectly flat. You know, it's, the green isn't 50 feet above you or anything. And as soon as you hit it, you're thinking, you know, go in the hole. This is perfect. It's right at it. Go in the hole. It's exactly how I wanted. And it falls out of the air 25 yards short or, or flies 25 yards long. And you're like, what just happened? Like, I have no idea what just happened. Well, maybe you typically swing that gap wedge at, you know, 82 miles per hour. Um, and it felt like it was exactly 82 miles an hour, but maybe it was really 76. Maybe it was really 86. Um, and, and you hit the ball a lot harder, or a lot softer than you think you did, or it felt like you did. This also happens in putting. You'll see a lot of people when they get really nervous and they have lag putts, their speed control gets way off because their sense of force is impacted. So just think of that in terms of I get really nervous and my arms get really heavy. Well, we hit that 30 foot lag putt and, you know, we hit it 20 or we hit it 40 because we have a really hard time getting a good sense of what force we should apply. The last thing that it does, and this is really important in golf, is when you have high frequency brain waves, it causes your ability to hold the target to be compromised. So golf, you know, most every other sport, when you're doing whatever that sport is, you're looking at the target. Golf is not like that, except for very close putts. You are taking one last look and you're looking down. And the moment that you look down, your brain has to retain where that target is in space. And when you have high frequency brain waves, your brain can shift where that target is. And so when you see players get nervous, under stress, coming down the stretch, however you want to phrase it, um, and you see them hit big blocks or big pulls, 
a lot of players are they they go back and they start you know doing the rehearsal swing. What did I do wrong? Well, what could have happened, what contributed, is that your brain moved the target, and you're a really good athlete, and even really bad athletes, even us weekend warriors like me, we're, our body's just gonna our brain is reacting and it's sending different instructions saying, Hey, you know, that target's really, it's really 20 yards, right. And so it's just reacting to where it now thinks the target is. And you're hitting these big blocks, big pulls, just because it thinks the target's in a different spot. Um, and so all of these things, they don't, you know, they don't guarantee you hit a bad shot. It just kind of tips the scales in the favor of hitting a, you know, a bad shot. And when you're in low frequency, like when you're in the zone, it doesn't guarantee you hit a good shot. It just really increases the the likelihood that you're going to hit a good shot. So probably went way over two minutes there, but you know, those are, you know, that's kind of what's in, in play. And that's, you know, what I learned when I went through um, the certification program, you know, kind of understanding neurologically what's going on. And, and now I get to a, apply that and, and teach that to my players to help them to, you know, understand what's going on and then specifically what to do about it. That was very comprehensive and demonstrated an understanding uh, at a very, very high level as far as what was going on. It was useful uh, to hear. I think I've heard some of those things before, but nonetheless, the idea of things moving fast and slow, something Cooper and I talk about a lot, which is when things start going wrong on the golf course, everything feels like, oh man, it's, it's going fast. It's going fast. And I talked about it on the last episode. One of the things that impressed me, that one of the most impressed I've ever been um, at it, seeing any golf tournament was Will Zalatoris this year in the PGA Championship when he had to take relief from that car path. That was that yeah, took the a, car path. Yeah. yeah, that took 15 minutes. And if yeah. that was me, like, a, and a lot of people would, they'd be like, "All right, I, I got to find a spot. I got to drop. I got to move. I got to just. I just got to get this done." Um, right. And he did such a great job staying patient. That's something that, you know, a lot, a lot of great shots are awesome, but not, they're hard to repeat in the sense that like they're fantastic feats. Like some of Tiger's shots are incredible. That's, that's one of those things, how he stayed present, uh, managed to gather himself and stay focused on the moment. That's something that takes discipline, but is doable by a lot of people out there, hopefully with training, not, not just uh one off, when it comes to having that level of discipline and that level of mindfulness, what do you see in your players? What do they do to try to to try to have that level of mindfulness and not let things go fast, not let those waves take over and uh, cyclically um, in, fall into a cycle? Yeah, there's a you know there's a lot of techniques that you can apply, and without going through all of them, uh, I'll give you just like one simple thing to do. Um, when you, um, when you are in your pre-shot routine, so I'll ask Cooper cause Cooper's the best player here. Uh, no offense, Daniel, but when you're in your pre-shot routine, do you take a deep breath? Yes. Right before I step into the, what, what me and Daniel's old coach called the shot box. Right. Why do you take a deep breath? To get it over with so that I'm not thinking about breathing while I'm trying to swing the club. Okay. But also, so, I mean, I guess also <clears throat> to calm myself in an attempt to calm myself down. Yeah. And so what happens when you take a really deep breath and, you know, a very deep breath, if we had you hooked up to an EEG machine to measure your brainwave activity, when you take that deep breath and exhale, you know, at the end of it, we would see your brainwave frequency come down. It would lower. And the mental game um, is, 
almost exclusively, uh, pretty much exclusively about trying to get your brain into that state. Um, it's trying to get to low frequency brain waves. And so everything that we do is about trying to get to low frequency brain waves. And so you hear things like, um, you know, stay in the present. Well, cool. That's true. But what does that mean? Well, it could mean, you know, focusing on your breath um, and doing something like box breathing while you're walking, if you know what that is. Um, so box breathing, you guys know what that is? All right. So box breathing is, um, you know, um, in inhale for four seconds and you can change the times on this inhale for four, hold it for four, exhale for four, wait and do nothing for four, inhale for four, hold it for four. And you're just kind of going around, um, and you're doing that. Um, it's a great way. Uh, and then just focus on your breath. And so if you've ever done anything like guided meditation, it's really good training and practice for what we're trying to do. We, we don't want to think about, you know, what happened last hole, what happened last shot, what happened last round, what happened last week. We don't want to think about, oh, I got that tee shot on 17 coming up. We just want to focus on the present right here and right now, focusing on your breath, focusing on the things around you, um, getting really detailed about the things that you're noticing in the very, very present moment. And by doing that, the goal for all of this is to lower your brainwave frequency. And all of these things that you're going to do are going to lower your brainwave frequency. And if we can lower your brainwave frequency, we increase the likelihood of you hitting a good shot. And if we're raising our brainwave frequency, we're just increasing the likelihood of you hitting a poor shot. So we're trying to, everything we do in the mental game is trying to get to low frequency. That's really what the, what the objective is. What would be something that you would tell your players to um, go through in their mind as like a mental conversation to lower brainwave frequency. Cause I know, yeah, so there's, I know, I'm sorry. I know, you know, when I played my best, I always had a mantra. I always <laughs> said the same thing before to myself right before I hit the shot. And so I felt like that lowered my brainwave frequency without having any actual data on that. Yeah, no, those, that's, that's a great thing to do. So breathing is great. There's other techniques you can do around focusing. There's, there's techniques you can do around, you know, squeezing your grip, letting your grip go, um, you know, squeezing your grip until you have like 10 out of 10 pressure and then slowly releasing it till you get two out of 10 pressure. All of these things are going to lower your brainwave frequency. The other thing that you can do that's really effective, you know, people will, will, you know, stand behind a ball and they'll visualize the shot, give words to that shot. And, and so, you know, you can have a mantra, that's great, but describe your shot like you are a narrator and somebody's listening to the details of the shot you're about to hit, or you're, you know, you're writing a book, you're an author, and you're explaining to somebody the shot that, that you're about to hit and give it very specific detail. You know, when you're by yourself in a practice round, say it out loud. You know, if you, if you're, you know, playing in a tournament or with your buddies, um, you know, do it to your, do it, um, say it to yourself, you know, but give very, very specific details about what you're going to do. Okay. I have the seven iron, the ball's a little bit below my feet. Uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try to play it back in my stance a little bit. I'm going to hit this thing right on the button. I'm going to flight this thing low and it's going to start at the right edge of the green and it's, it's going to come out and it's going to climb because it's going to get above the canopies and then it's going to, it's going to fall back to the left and it's going to land about eight feet you know, short of the hole, it's going to skip a few times. It's going to kind of hit that bank and it's going to feed down. 
and give very, very specific instructions like you're describing it in a book or, you know, somebody's listening to it on a podcast that can't see it. And by doing that, it really helps to give a boost to the visualization. Um, another trick, and you've probably heard this one before with visualization is put a shot tracer on it, um, change colors, uh, change colors, like do a red shot tracer, do a green one, do a yellow one, do a purple one, do a rainbow colored one, um, and do all of those things. And those just give a little bit of an extra boost, combine visualization and giving a description to the shot together. Like one of the things you'll hear, you know, people say sometimes anecdotally is when they get themselves in a, you know, I don't want to say in a complete jail situation where it's like a one in a zillion shot, but when they get themselves in a situation where they, you know, they're forced to, you know, curve it a certain way or hit it a certain trajectory, like they're not smack dab in the middle of the fairway. Um, and you'll, you'll hear this a lot from players that are otherwise not playing all that well that day. Like, you know, they're kind of a little bit off then they get up on the right hand side and there's this big overhanging tree and they got it, you know, they got to just, you know, pinch some low cut around the tree and it, you know, and they pull it off and, th and they say, you know, I, I can hit this shot, but I can't hit one from the middle of the fairway. And what they likely did in that situation is they gave very specific instructions to what they needed to do. And by giving those specific instructions, it increases your likelihood of hitting a good shot. And those giving those very specific instructions also keeps you present, quote unquote, in the moment, and it's going to lower your brainwave frequency. When we talk about being in the present, I think there's a saying, which is, you know, when you live in the past, uh, too much in the past, that's depression. When you live too much in the future, that's anxiety. And part of what factors into anxiety or depression can be expectations. Um, and one of the big things that you've brought around is or have maybe not brought around, but popularized more so, I think, than anyone else, uh, or at least as much as anyone else, is expectation management, especially for scratch golfers. You you release data all the time uh, that shows people they need to be way more tempered with their expectations. I can, and sometimes uh, I, I wish it made it even further because there have been people I've played with who are, you know, two or three handicaps and every 20 footer they miss, uh, they're getting. They're letting it. They're letting it out. They're so mad, and I'm like, man, you had a 20 footer. Uh, re relax, like it, you weren't <laughs> supposed to make that. Um, so I think what might be uh, good to go through, if you don't mind, is let's say I'm a scratch golfer. Uh, what exactly should I expect from different places? That way, people understand because a lot of the people listening will be better than that to a degree, and some of them are going to be worse than that degree, but if they understand where a scratch golfer is, at least they should understand, at least relatively speaking, what their expectations are. So let's say I'm a scratch golfer and I'm 120 yards in the fairway. What should I, what should my expectations be? Uh, you want to make, you want to make a par. So let's, you know, assume it's after your tee shot and you're on a par four. Par is going to gain you strokes against the baseline for a scratch player. They average over three shots from 120 yards in the fairway, 3.06 shots from 120 yards in the fairway. So if you get down in three shots, you just did better than what a typical scratch player would do in that situation. So the objective there is not making bogey. Do we want to make a birdie? Sure, that'd be great. Do we want to give, our, you know, give ourselves a good look at one? That'd be awesome. But making a three in that situation is going to gain you strokes against the typical scratch player. Um, 
And, you know, if you go and, and look at even, you know, you, Cooper, you played college golf and, you know, I, I work um, with a number of college players. I coach at Princeton and, you know, I spend a lot of time on golf stat looking at, at college data and you can go through and you can see um, there's a ton of tournaments where, you know, if you go and par the par threes and par the par fours, you're going to be in pretty good shape. If you can throw in one birdie on a par five, you're, you're going to be in really, really good shape. You know, people are typically not tearing up par fours and par threes. They're just not even at elite levels. So, you know, having those right expectations uh, or understanding them, I think is important. And I think it's really important to note that managing your expectations doesn't mean you're lowering your expectations. I want you to stand up to every single shot and I want you to try as hard as you can give 100% effort and I want that ball, you know, your objective is to hit that ball exactly where you're trying to hit it. Like that's the objective and you're giving it everything you have physically and mentally to pull that off and make it happen. Uh, but you have to realize that that's not going to happen too often. You're going to hit it in an area around that target. And depending on your skill level, that area is going to be bigger or smaller. Um, and so having the right expectations and managing those expectations can have a really positive impact. And what happens is um, players will often have very warped expectations of what they think is good. And they may think that every 100-yard shot, every 120-yard shot needs to be inside 12 feet, um, or I've failed, I haven't hit a good shot. And they might actually be a really, really good wedge player. Like you might have a scratch player that is, you know, a, the a wedge player like the typical plus four. They're really an unbelievable wedge player, but because because they have these warped expectations that I haven't hit a good shot unless I hit it inside 12 feet, um, what can happen is you can start to beat yourself up over that and you can start to say, I'm not a good wedge player. And ironically, what can happen is it can have a negative impact on how good of a wedge player you are. Like it can start to hurt your game um, and turn you into a, a, uh, a less wedge player than you were all because you didn't understand that you were, you are one of the best wedge players for amateur golfers on the planet. Um, but you thought it, you should be better than you really are. So it's really important to understand these things and know how to apply them. Cause it can, it can help you to score better. That's perfect. As far as, you know, um, expectation management goes, that's right on especially for someone, you know, who's a good player can, they can end up going down the cyclical path of not thinking they're that good and then performing worse, not thinking they're that good. And, uh, you end up being whatever you believe about yourself in that case. And talking about expectations with wedges, let's go, let's say I'm 50 yards in the fairway. What should, and that, let's say it's my drive. I'm 50 yards in the fairway. What should my expectation be? You're not going to get up and down too much. You're going to average about 2.8 shots from there, um, from 50 yards in the fairway as a scratch player, which means you're going to get up and down about one out of five times, roughly, maybe probably a smidge, you know, smidge less than that maybe. Um, and that is uh, not what most people expect. Like they would expect a scratch player is going to tear that up and get up and down a huge chunk of the time. And they're just simply not going to. Um, so, you know, you are, you know, until you start to get really close, like around the green, basically, you know, you're going to be, 
you know, 50 yards in the fairway is 2.8 shots. Um, 50 yards in the rough, it, it, I don't know exactly what it is, but typically it's about a tenth of a shot difference. So it's going to be 2.9. It's going to be like 2.89 to 2.91 roughly for 50 yards in the rough. That's nearly three shots, right? It's nearly three shots on the average to get the ball in the hole from 50 yards in the rough. And so and it's not much different from 50 in the fairway. So you know, avoiding big numbers at every level uh, is the key. So we want to we want to make as many pars as we possibly can. Hopefully, we throw in the occasional birdie, um, and we avoid all the doubles and triples. If you're a you know an elite player and as many bogeys as we can. Um, I'm just curious for better players, is the discrepancy between the rough and fairway more? Like, would they score lower from the fairway as opposed to the rough than the uh, amateur golfer? Yeah, that's definitely um, what you see. So PJ Tour, you know, ag- again, so much depends on um, you know grass type and height of the rough, but PGA Tour players have a bigger delta, bigger difference between being in the fairway and being in the rough from the same distance. Um, and it's it's you know, there's a lot of reasons there, but it's not necessarily because. Um, you know, they're, they're not that good from the rough. They're just so good from the fairway. They're so, so good from the fairway that losing the ability to control trajectory and spin out of the rough um, is, a, is a much bigger hit to them than it is the 10 handicap. You know, the 10 handicap is not as good from the fairway. It's not that the, you know, the 10 handicap doesn't have as much of a difference from the fairway and the rough. And it, it's not because they're a better rough player or they're playing rough that's easier. It's just they're not as good from the fairway. Mm-hmm. Like they, they're not necessarily taking advantage of the same things that the PGA Tour player is taking advantage of. Hopefully that makes sense the way I, I, I describe that, but that's kind of what's going on. And then you know, as you get farther and farther away from the hole for the amateur player, the difference between the fairway and the rough um, becomes almost non-existent. And then when you get to a certain distance for some of the higher handicap players, they're typically better off in the rough um, because, you know, when you get a 20 handicap and you put a three wood in their hand from 260 on a fairway lie, which is tight to the ground, um, they're not very good at that. But you put them 260 in the rough where the ball is probably going to be at least off the ground a little bit. Now, it might be tougher to get through that grass depending but it's it, for higher handicaps, it's typically going to be a lot easier to hit the ball out of a lie where the ball is off the ground a little bit. Um, so it's uh, but again, you know, all of this, uh, there's no perfect hard and fast rule. Um, everything's always you know changing because I'm sure someone's listening going, oh, I play a golf course with six inch rough and, you know, you can't ever. And that's true. Right. Yeah. If you have six. Probably with the course at six inch rough, I'd suggest finding a new course. But you know, you're certainly in a different situation than somebody that plays a course with inch and a half rough. Hitting the three woods always hard. Uh, I can think of a few of our buddies that play on the Corn Ferry who I know have topped three woods in Corn Ferry rounds. So uh, sure, that's yeah. that's part of that's part of the game. You said going back, going farther from the hole. I got one. I got one more as far as distance from the hole, and then we'll move. Um, towards our final questions as far as going back you take a scratch golfer i'm 200 yards in the fairway if 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 120 yards in the fairway i'm already averaging over par assuming that's my drive where am i at 200 yards in the fairway 
Yeah, three and a half shots from 200 yards in the fairway for a scratch player. So you're bogeying half the time? Yeah, yeah, roughly. Yeah, you're getting down in four half the time, three half the time, you know, very occasionally getting, you know, getting up and down very, very occasionally. And you're going to mix in doubles and triples too. So yeah, three and a half shots on the average from 200 yards in the fairway for a scratch player. And that, you know, starts to go up quite a bit if we're looking at five and 10 handicap players um, or 15 handicap players from 200 yards in the fairway. So, you know, advancing the ball, you know, as far as you can, as often as you can, taking into account penalty strokes um, is extremely important. And, you know, even scratch players from 200 yards out, it's three and a half shots. So, you know, you hit a ball somewhere around the green that's relatively playable. It's a really good shot. I mean, I think what you say right there, the thing that shocks even me, like I knew these things, but I think the thing that would surprise most people is that 120 yards and that 50 yards number, just how few times you're making birdie. But when you take when you take that, like you're not making birdie that many times, you're making par a few times, and really like making bogey from those spots, especially like 50 yards, can be death. And that's often often contrary to what I heard, even from not from teachers necessarily, but from you know, people who had kids that were really good golfers, et cetera. I can remember one guy saying, you got to be hitting it to like within 10 feet from 120 yards every time uh, if you want to play high-level golf. And clearly, I mean, scratch is pretty high level. And clearly, you're not – obviously, from almost no you're, – you're not yeah. hitting it in that in that dispersion pattern, uh, which is – which is just goes to show how stats are important to making sure people's expectations are aligned because – and making sure they're not frustrated because I would get frustrated sometimes after I heard that one. I was like, Oh man, I guess I got to go and do that. So I appreciate you giving us that information and I, hopefully that resonates with people. Um, I know I'm going to be thinking about it moving towards our last question. The last question is if you could go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing and you played a little bit, you played a little bit of golf as junior golf. So you even go back to yourself as like 2021 when you get when you're becoming yeah. a golf nut if you could tell yourself just one thing what would it be um i i worked way 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 too much on my putting um <clears throat> i spent way too much time on my putting and i think there were probably two factors in play there so you know back then the you know the putting was perceived to be the most important thing uh drive for show putt for dough um, and so that was sort of the, you know, any teacher you would go to, anyone you would talk to, that's what they would, that's what they would hammer home, drive for show, putt for dough. You got to be a great putter. And so that combined with me, um, switching hands, like me going in, going from playing left-handed to playing to right-handed, but not switching my putter. I think what I tended to do was um, it was I'm way more coordinated that way as a lefty. You know, if you were to, and I'm sure you guys have both done this, where you throw a golf ball up in the air and you bat it out of the air like it's a baseball, right? I could do that left-handed all day long. Um, <clears throat> could do that with my putter left-handed all day long. If you ask me to do that with my driver with a right-handed swing, I'm going to like I'm, I'm probably going to strike out. I might, you know, foul a few off, but I'm not going to hit it really well. I'm not really coordinated. And so I think what happened to me was when I switched over to playing right-handed, um, I not only heard drive for show, putt for dough, 
and, and took that to heart. But I tended to practice too much something that that was a strength. And it always felt easier for me to putt than to hit balls. So I would go back and I would have focused way more on my full swing than my putting. Um, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a really good putter. I'm a horrible ball striker. Um, and as we know, being a really good ball striker is extremely important if you want to, you know, get to the highest levels possible. Um, and, you know, I live and die by my ball striking and it's, you know, it's never been, it's been spotty at best and good enough to kind of get me around. So I would have gone back and I would have put the same effort into being a ball striker as I did into being a good putter. Beautiful. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Where can people find you on social media or reach out to you or read your newsletter uh, if they want to learn more about you, more about expectations management, or just have any questions. Yeah, awesome. So my newsletter, I just started releasing it. You can go sign up at uh, Lou Stagner Golf, uh, loustagnergolf.com. So you can go there and just an easy sign up form. And I send that out once a week. Um, and then you can find me on Twitter, um, at Lou Stagner on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram, at Lou Stagner Golf, but I'm too dumb to figure out Instagram and and. I need to I need to make an effort to get on there more, but uh, Twitter is just a lot easier for for an old dumb guy like me. Thanks for joining us today. Please do us a big favor and like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, so we can help others learn how to play better tournament golf. You can find us online at thetournamentcode.com, on Instagram at thetournamentcode, and on Twitter at tournamentcode. As always. Feel free to reach out to us at those places or email us at daniel at the tournamentcode.com and cooper at the tournamentcode.com. We hope you join us as we continue to dive deeper in what it takes to play elite tournament golf.